Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Luke 12 through 16 is a large chunk of mostly teaching material. Jesus' message is attracting large numbers of people, so many that they are trampling each other. Popularity, however, is never the goal. Jesus came to give life more abundant and free, to reform, to love, to release. Um, Popularity is not his goal. We're told that there are no secrets. God sees and knows everything. We're encouraged to be fearless. There is, however, a difference between a denial of nerve and a denial of heart. A denial of nerve means when we came right up to the moment, we choked for just a bit and we weren't who we wanted to be. We weren't consistent with the commitment that we made. A denial of heart seems to imply that we were never really committed. We were only going with the way the wind blew. So we were loyal to God in one situation and not in another because whatever we thought was going to benefit us best. In verse 4, it mentions the word hell. This is Gehenna. Gehenna was a trash heap in the valley of Hinnom, southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where human sacrifice had been practiced at one time in the history of Israel. And because of that, it had been deemed good for nothing else other than trash. So that is one of the metaphors that Jesus uses for hell. The parable of the rich fool is unique to Luke. Um, We're shown that anxiety is futile and encouraged not to worry. The word lilies most likely refers to the purple anemone that would have grown um, in fields and clothed the the hillsides. Ravens are are crows. They were an unclean and the least respected of all the birds. Grass is a very traditional Old Testament symbol of transitoriness, of um, impermanence, of a short, something that lasts only for a short while. And in verse 32, the phrase little flock is a very tender and loving term. It, it encourages us to sell our possessions and give alms. In other words, to use our resources for the kingdom. One is loyal to the things that are most valued, and we are encouraged to make that God. We're encouraged to be ready. Being dressed is literally being girded. It was a way they tied up their robes for quick movement or running. They would reach between their legs and grab the back of their robe, pull it through the legs and up into the belt in the front, literally creating a pair of pants so that they could move quickly and not trip. Keeping the lamps lit uh, enables us to move around in the dark and be able to see. Now let's talk for a second about the watches of the night. The Romans had four watches to cover the night. They began at 6 and 9 p.m., 12 midnight, and 3 a.m. The Jewish people, however, only had three night watches. One began at 6 p.m., one at 10 p.m., and one at 2 a.m. 
The story of the faithful or unfaithful um, slave applies to all of us, but it particularly applies to leaders. We are responsible for the way in which we lead and what that says about God by the way that we lead. We are reminded here that Jesus divides. He came to bring good news, and his message is good news, but we have to choose whether or not to accept his message and to apply it in our lives. And that choice creates divisions because some are not going to choose God. And that choice will cause rifts with people. When Jesus refers to um, a baptism with which he's going to be baptized, we believe it means he, he is inundated by the divine judgment, by the, what he's going to carry in himself to the cross. And it causes him stress. It's emotional distress at what is coming. So we see the two natures of Jesus. His divine nature is going to be required in order to undergo what is coming. But that causes his his human nature some stress. He encourages us to interpret the times. They would have known when they saw a cloud rising from the west that moisture had evaporated from the Mediterranean and would be bringing rain. And winds from the south would have been coming from the southwest. They would have been coming off the continent of Africa and would have brought a dry, arid, hot heat. The penny that is mentioned here is a lepton. It was actually one-eighth of a penny. It was their very smallest of coins. In chapter 13, the, the urging to repent or perish is unique to Luke. And the events that Jesus talks about right here, we can't find anywhere else mentioned, either in or outside Scripture. So we aren't familiar with these events, but they would have been things that the people sitting there or standing there listening to Jesus would have understood what he was talking about. He's making the point that tragedy does not equal sinfulness. We should not assume that everything that happens to somebody is something they brought upon themselves. The barren fig tree, at three years of age, that fig tree should have been established, mature, and be bearing fruit. And it's not. The gardener, however, argues to expend some more resources on what may very well be an unlikely cause. There's a chance that this tree is just a late bloomer. It's just a little less mature, growing a little bit slower than the rest. But more than likely, this is a bad tree that's not ever going to bear fruit. Three years is an interesting figure in Scripture. Three years is about the length of time of Jesus' ministry. So the disciples underwent their on-the-job training and mentorship program for about three years. The book of Acts tells us that Paul retreated to learn and prepare for ministry for about three years. And three years is the average length of seminary for those of us who are training to lead the church now. Please know that God is both the gardener and the vineyard owner, or the orchard owner. Um, He is both. So both the frustration and disappointment that we are not responding to all of his offers of love and grace and mercy come right alongside his patience and willingness to keep investing in us. The the healing of the crippled woman is a story that is unique to Luke. There were 39 forms of labor that were forbidden on the Sabbath, and healing is one of them. Jesus points out to them that they are more compassionate to animals than they are people. If one of their animals got stuck, they wouldn't hesitate to get it out 
on the Sabbath, and yet they don't want people to be set free from disease and suffering on the Sabbath. I want you to notice that they don't confront Jesus directly. They talk to others in the crowd. Uh, Oh, how we would rather talk about someone than talk to someone. Or if talking to them doesn't get us what we want, we then go talk about them. The woman never asked for Jesus' help. In her culture, they would not have seen her. They would have shunned her. But Jesus sees her. And it inspires us to know that Jesus sees us sees our heart, our emotions, our suffering, sees what we need. We are seen and loved and accepted by God. Then we have the parables of the mustard seed and yeast with which many of us are familiar. The kingdom of God comes in gradually, starts small, but it culminates by being totally present. It permeates everything that there is. The mustard tree is one of a couple of different species of bushes that could grow quite large, and so sometimes it's called a bush, sometimes it's called a tree. A mustard seed is not literally the smallest seed, but it was the smallest common seed. It's one that everybody would have been familiar with. So Jesus is making a point and not a scientific statement. And eventually the birds of the air are going to be able to enjoy the calm and the serenity that all started with a very tiny seed. The three measures of yeast, um, the word Hebrew for a measure is sia, and three measures would have been 39.4 liters or 50 pounds. This is an enormous amount of dough that it only takes a small amount of yeast. We have no idea of the ripples of the effect of how far-reaching our actions, for good or for evil, but hopefully for Jesus, can create. The door is narrow and is only open for a time. There are those people who are going to be familiar with Jesus. They have shared meals with him, eating and drinking. They've been present for his teaching, but they did not respond in a way that caused him to recognize them as his own. This is very convicting for me as someone who's in ministry because there may be people in the church sit under the teachings, spend time, get invited to connect with God through Jesus Christ, participate in our rituals, but have never truly responded in a way that causes God to recognize them as His own. And that is heartbreaking for me. Jesus laments over Jerusalem the way many Old Testament prophets do. And in verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 118, which was a recognized messianic psalm. So he is um, low-key asserting his messiahship. In chapter 14, we see a man who is healed from dropsy. Dropsy was swollen limbs and joints due to excess fluid. It was considered to be a judgment for sexual sin. For So he wasn't just sinful, he should have been ashamed. In the next part, we have some advice. Jesus is giving some advice to guests and hosts. He advises humility for guests and hospitality for hosts. As a guest, don't assume your relationship, and this is encouraging us not to assume our relationship with God, to let God um, honor us at His time and not be arrogant about that. And if we're the host to show good hospitality, the best hospitality is given, not exchanged. And we could cross-reference this with Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. We need to prepare for the diversity that God accepts at His table. 
The story of the divine dinner, some initially accepted the invitation, some make excuses, they have other priorities, some are rude about it. Um, and this all is a parable for us. Some rejected the invitation from the prophets. They're now rejecting Jesus. There are some like the religious leaders who assume that they will be at the table, but by not accepting the invitation and actually showing up, the invitation is going to go out to others. That's going to be to the Gentiles, to the ones they deemed unworthy as well. There is a cost to discipleship. Jesus tells us that unless we hate father and mother, this is a rhetorical device. It is hyperbole, and it's talking about comparisons. Our commitment to God should be so thorough that it makes our loyalty and our love of our parents look like hate in comparison. We must be willing to suffer for our commitment to Christ. We're not just fair-weather Christians, and we must recognize as he encourages someone to recognize when you're not going to be able to defeat that king, recognize the greater power and choose to join and ally with it instead of um, ally with it instead of opposing it. Salt is a really interesting particle right here. Salt could improve the soil. It helped turn manure into fertilizer. We know that too much can be bad, but in this case, it's talking about the beneficial effects. Specifically, he's referring here to the fact that bakers covered the floor of their ovens with salt because it had a catalytic effect when used with cattle dung to create the kinds of heat that they needed to bake good products. Over time, however, it lost its ability to do that, and there would be a point at which it had to be discarded and new salt added. So when salt has lost its flavor. It's lost its effectiveness. It's not useful for anything. Now, it doesn't improve the soil. It doesn't help manure become fertilizer. It's been used up. In chapter 15, we have the lost and found parables. All three of these parables are unique to Luke, and they're very common ones used, um, very common for sermon texts. A flock of about a 100 sheep would have been a very modest size. Most Um, flocks would have been around 200 in nature. So the fewer sheep you have, the more precious each one is. Um, You would have still been able to know each and every one and go and search them out. The coin that the woman loses is probably a drachma. This was around a day's wage for a laborer. It would have been the price of a sheep or one-fifth of an ox. So you would have to work five days to be able to afford to buy an ox. So the coin is not priceless. It's just precious. It It is a significant amount of money, though. In the story of the prodigal son, the younger son is entitled to one third of the father's estate. The older son, having been the firstborn and having firstborn rights, is entitled to twice as much as the younger son. So he would have gotten two thirds. The prodigal son represents the sinner. The older son represents the self-righteous religious leadership. We want to make sure that we are not either of those, that we are not the sinner and that we are not the self-righteous. The dissolute living that is mentioned in verse 13 is not necessarily indicate prostitutes, as the brother alleges in verse 30. It does mean um, unwise living. He's frittered away what he inherited. I love that the son comes to himself. He has an epiphany. He wakes up. When we come to ourselves and realize 
who we are, who we were created to be in Jesus Christ, and that we are not there. And he responds with humility and repentance. That is the appropriate response to realizing we have failed to align our lives with God. The signet ring that the father gives him would have allowed him to conduct business in the father's name. The son decides he's only worthy to be a servant. The the father says, nope, you're my son, and you can even conduct business for me. After he wasted away a third of the father's estate, the father would still allow him to conduct business for him. That's forgiveness. These three parables were all designed to move the Pharisees and the scribes from grumbling to rejoicing, to change their attitude toward what they saw happening with Jesus, to celebrate these people who were coming to God, not go, ooh, that is not who we wanted. That older brother in the story of the prodigal has lived in the father's presence all these years and has never really understood who the father is, never really comprehended the father's nature of love and kindness and generosity. He only saw his dad as someone to work for, someone to please. Um, We so should not treat God that way. And let's not miss that we're not seeking the lost coin. We're not seeking the lost sheep. We are the lost coin, the lost sheep and the prodigal son. We are the lost objects. God is the seeker. Chapter 16 The parable of the dishonest manager is also unique to Luke. And as he reduces the amount of their debt, he's probably forgiving the interest. So the original, the one to whom they owe the money will get everything back they have coming that they've loaned. They just will get less interest. It reminds us to be generous with our possessions. Even evil people know how to use kindness and generosity to their benefit. This dishonest manager is charitable and exhibits foresight, and we're encouraged. How much more so should we do it? This dishonest manager is doing it with an ulterior motive. We should also be kind and generous to exhibit charity and foresight as we serve God without that ulterior motive. Our character and our priorities are revealed in everything that we do. Integrity means we are the same with everybody, and eventually it comes out. We see people for who they are. Jesus is fighting for us. He wants us to choose rightly. A choice between God's way and the world's way is forced on each of us, and we must choose. There is a difference between the letter and the spirit of the law. We need to do the right thing, not just the legal thing. And we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's another passage that is unique to Luke. It contrasts the fate of the dependent poor and the callous rich. There's a principle at work here called sowing and reaping. We sow seeds and we should expect to reap what we've sown. If we sow kindness and generosity, we should expect to get that back. There's also the spiritual principle at work. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is getting less of something negative, less punishment, fewer consequences than we deserve. Grace is getting more than we deserve. But we're told here in this story that everyone is getting 
justice. They're getting what they deserve. The rich man felt entitled his whole life. He even still feels entitled after death. He still wants someone to go do his bidding for him. Lazarus didn't get what he deserved in life, and now he is. Um, The rich man also depends on his heritage. He wants to depend on who he is. We all must accept the faith for ourselves. It doesn't matter how much faith our grandmother had or our parents. We must make a choice for Jesus Christ. There is a chasm that is fixed. And for me, this says there is a time of judgment. There is a time when the decisions that we've made, either consciously or with our actions, cannot be reversed. I don't believe it happens in this lifetime. I believe as long as there's breath in the body, there's opportunity to repent, to choose Jesus, to to turn to the right. But at some point, that decision-making time has ended. And in verse 29, we are told, we already have enough to decide. We've had enough signs. We've had enough connection. We have enough testimony and witness in people and nature. We have everything we need to decide, and we are urged to choose God. That's Luke 12 through 16.